Engaging Leader Podcast, episode 14, five ways to demotivate people. Are you making any of these common leadership mistakes? Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. I'm your host, Jesse Leahy, sharing principles learned from many years in communication, consulting, and leadership. And I'm your co-host, Marty Leahy, sharing from my years in financial and business leadership. And although we lead separate companies in different industries, Dad and I love to talk business. That's right, Jess. And today our focus is the five biggest ways to demotivate people. Yes. How do we avoid demotivating people, whether that is employees, customers, family members, or whatever? I think it's important to mention that these are not just five opinions that we have, that the five things we're going to share today are actually based on empirical research. In fact, psychological studies with hundreds of thousands of people conducted by Burnham Rosen Group over a period of decades. So this is not just opinion, this is factually based guidance. Now, Dad, you remember back a few episodes ago in episode... 10, we were discussing Daniel Pink's book, Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And there's a a leader that I greatly respect who recently published a list of 10 books that will make you a better leader. He included Drive on that list of 10. But when he was explaining why it was important, he said, if you need to motivate others, this is an essential addition to your leadership library. And when I read that if you need to motivate others, I thought, I don't need to motivate others. I don't know if you feel like you need to motivate your employees or motivate your your customers. Maybe somewhere down deep you do, but I thought, it's no wonder it took me a few years to get around to reading that book and, and, and why I think a lot of people miss the huge potential of that book. That book is about intrinsic motivation Somewhere in there, he says, old-fashioned ideas of management are giving way to newfangled emphasis on self-direction. He said that there has been in the past an assumption that people's natural state is passive inertia, but he, he kind of went on to, I think one of the most important parts of that book is he went on to prove that really people's natural state is actually one of self-motivation. And it's almost like we learn inertia. We learn to not do things and so, how do we learn that? Well, we got demotivated along the way. Yeah, it's actually pretty encouraging to think, uh, and, I, and I believe what he's saying, to think that as humans, we're, we're self-starters. I mean, we have an engine that's running. Once the individual is aligned with what intrinsically really motivates them, it's like, it's like the perpetual motion machine. You know, you have to be fed, obviously, once in a while. But what you want to be careful of as a leader is not to, you know, throw some barriers in the way to, you know, take the wind out of the sails or step on someone's air hose, if you will, when they are intrinsically motivated. Right. Let's make the assumption that, for example, if you're a leader with employees or wh- whether they're true employees or they're just uh, volunteers or people you have influence over that you're trying to cobble together into a team, 
let, let's assume that you've got the right people on the bus to begin with. That, you know, Dad, at your restaurant, for example, hopefully you're not hiring employees that, that have no interest in serving customers. I think that when, on, the, on the day they accept the job and they walk in the door to work, yeah, they're there to make money, but th- they better have a heart to see customers be delighted or you really shouldn't have them there. The happiest and the most successful employees that we have, and I'm thinking primarily of the ones w- that we call front of the house, the ones that really deal directly with customers, are the ones that you describe, you know, where they, they, they enjoy it. We're in the entertainment business and they enjoy entertaining people and getting that reaction from people. Once in a while you have an employee who they, they service a customer based on what they think uh, their tips can be. And if, if, if they think they're serving somebody who's really not going to tip them, then they don't give them the same service. And, and they, they, invariably they're less happy people and actually less well-paid people. And um, the ones that we've had over the years that have stayed and have thrived are the ones that are having a good time. Yeah, they just they have an intrinsic motivation. But we can, as leaders, we can actually cause things that demotivate people. They may, on their first day on the job, be very motivated. Or the first time they come to visit your, your business establishment, let's say a customer at your restaurant, they didn't need you to twist your arm to, to come check you out. And yet things can happen and you may never see them again. Uh, or back when you were a you know, CFO at, at different organizations and one of them was a nonprofit, those, surely, surely those employees, when they walked in the door on the first day, they weren't there just to get a paycheck. They had a, a bigger purpose. And yet I remember some of the stories you told that, uh, that some of those people, after they'd been there a while, you wondered what the heck their motivation was because it certainly wasn't really to make a difference in in the end mission of the of that uh, organization. Yeah, it's it's easy uh, easy enough over a long period of time uh, to lose one's passion, and part of it is is what what is the organization doing to impact that that intrinsic motivation? Let's cover the first uh, of these five common mistakes, Jesse. As a leader, if you're making all the decisions in an organization, that's uh, that w- that's certainly demotivating for people. That's right. In in Daniel Pink's book, he talks about autonomy as one of the the three key intrinsic motivators. My frustrations reading that book was okay. So what if that's so? What what do I do about that? Do I just sort of tell employees do whatever you want to do and be your own boss and and uh, let me know when we have the work done. So to, to kind of break that down to a, something you can change today, if you stop making all decisions yourself, one of the biggest mistakes you can make is to make all decisions yourself. And if instead you keep in mind, ask what is the appropriate level of authority and who should be making this decision? Should it be me? Should it be someone else on the team or uh, several people on the team working together uh, coming up with the decision? And you asked me earlier, is this just a question of delegation? I uh, answered, well, it's part of delegation, but it's in a way more fundamental because delegation is about assigning work to other people, getting things done through other people. This is about who's making the decision. and And that's a question of authority and accountability. And if you are delegating work to lots of people, but you're making all the decisions, 
then you're ultimately the one that is the hub of a wheel and everything comes through you and you're going to wear yourself out. You're not really delegating accountability. You're just, you're delegating tasks and they're going to come, come to you for every little thing. Yeah. You're, you're the center of the universe and, and, you know, everyone's revolving around you and, and all that passion and motivation that they may have uh, initially brought to the job, you know, starts to drain away. And, and it, and I think it, it becomes worse and worse at times and, and, uh, you know, people become less and less motivated. One of the things that, that I have struggled with, because I think this, this is a, a mistake that I do make a lot of times is, is to hold the decision-making too close. You know, after a while, people, they just automatically will just come to you and say, what do you want? I hate those. <laughs> what do you want? Like, what my, do you, give me an example. Uh, what do you want us to do when we, for these new blinds for the front of the dining room? What color do you want? What should we tell this customer who's having a problem? You know, how should we deal with... Basically, you know, my response is always, I don't want anything other than I want you to make the decision because you have all the information. And But, you know, I know that they're asking that question because in the past, I, I, I may have done something to make them fearful of, of stepping out and making a decision. So it's my own fault. Still, I... I have to hear those words, and I and you know sometimes I even go for the bait, and I'll say, "Well, yeah, green curtains, of course." What do you th- what are you thinking? <laughs> you know, you know. I, just getting back to what we we're saying, though, I think that is really energy draining for employees when when someone is holding all the decision making to themselves and being the center of everything. A good way to demotivate people is insisting that everything is black and white. That's right. Number two, insist that everything is black and white. The flip side is to be flexible to to recognize that hey, we live in a very complex world. And whether there's a decision to be made or a situation that we're facing, most things are not actually black and white. And especially when you get into any area that is evoking feelings and emotions, which the more you look at things, that's an awful lot of life involves emotions. You know, one of the the greatest books has an opening line. And if I read the first part, or if I quote the first part, you'll know what the second part is. It was the best of times. I just hate when you uh, throw these, (laughs) especially when you you, uh, preface it with, this is an easy one. (laughs) Here's an easy one. (laughs) Uh, How about it was all, it was the worst of times. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got one. As they say, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. (laughs) It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That is a, a contradiction. Pick one. Which was it? Was it the best of times? You can imagine, in you know, you're a former CFO, and you have one of your employees that says, well, it, it, it's this and it's that. And your nature as a financial analyst type is going to say, well, which is it? It's one or the other. It can't, can hardly be both. But that opening line has, everybody remembers that because it, it's, there's a truth in it. It's, it from a from a certain perspective, it's the best. It was the best of times. From an, another perspective, it was the worst of times. And even a single person can have conflicting emotions. And there's let's just say decisions. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made that are not easy to make because there's two sides of it. When you can appreciate that and actually vocalize your own contrasting feelings about an, an issue. It helps your team, or whether that's employees or customers, to share their feelings on it. And they see you as more human, and they're more willing to share. And in any business or endeavor, when people are more 
better able to share their feelings about things, then you can get down to fixing issues. If they don't feel free to share, you're never going to hear about the problems and therefore you won't know about them. So a customer is never going to tell you that, you know, it's a little bit chilly here in the restaurant or, you know, I I would have loved to have had two more uh, drinks during my dinner, but my server didn't just never showed up enough. All those kinds of situations don't ever come to your attention so you can fix if you walk around being inflexible, insisting that everything is black and white. Well, in, in being inflexible is it, I mean, the way, the way in which that demotivates so quickly is I think it just sends an, a signal of lack of respect for someone's emotions or the differences. And I, and I think, I think it's very powerful. You mentioned like with a customer, you, you can shut a customer up really fast if you let them know that you really don't value their opinion that much. I mean, this steak was overcooked. Oh uh, man, we have the best chef in town. He, do, he knows how to grill. That's a clear signal that basically you've demotivated that customer. They probably won't come back. Where the payoff is of being flexible is, you know, if, if you give things some time, you know, sometimes we, we're like a, you know, soundbite culture or, you know, kind of like the episode culture where the, you, the, the show starts on, the, on top of the hour and by, you know, 25 minutes later, it should be wrapped up the plot and everything. <laughs> and and th- there's a time factor involved in being flexible and not everything's going to get resolved today or, or, or perhaps this week. If you allow for creativity to blossom, you know, someone who's, whose differences you might not entirely appreciate but you have faith in what they're doing and, and you're being flexible from a time standpoint and patience, I guess, that the payoff could be huge. I mean, because creativity has a way of just, um, you know, bringing on some very um, almost unimaginable returns. You know, I think we, this is a good point to, to bring up something that can be a sensitive topic, but that people have differences. You know, one of the biggest differences is between men and women. I have these conversations, especially with, with the people that, that we have that work in what we call the back of the house, you know, cooks and things of this nature, which tends to be a male-dominated culture. There, sometimes you will have conflicts between the back of the house and the front of the house, a lot of females in the front of the house. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with the guys, explain to them how women, you know, they, they think differently. It doesn't mean they're wrong. They have different emotions and ways of approaching things. And they may tend to remember words that were said two weeks ago, and you guys don't remember what you said yesterday. To me, that's that, that's a good example of, of teaching flexibility too, and and as well as is um, practicing it yourself is make sure that the, the people working for you don't mo- demotivate each other because if people don't feel mutual respect, then everyone starts to tune out, especially if the leader doesn't try to cultivate that mutual respect. That's right. This is I have to say one of the things that I felt was missing from Daniel Pink's book Drive when he talks about intrinsic motivators, and he focused on autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I just thought he missed the whole realm of interpersonal relationships and how that is a driver. It's a motivator or a demotivator. It's one of the reasons a lot of people go to work is for the relationships that they have there or why people show up at your restaurant. It's the people reason. And that can be a big demotivator as well. So one way to to avoid demotivating people is is to be flexible rather than insisting everything is black and white. The next one's coming up, a really common thing, find someone to blame for every mistake. Yeah, even better, second guess every decision and work product that other 
people do. In other words, consider everything they do as a mistake. So find someone to blame and consider everything they do as a mistake. The flip side of that is accepting that not all mistakes will negatively affect the outcome. In fact, treat mistakes as learning opportunities. If, if people can learn from it, then they, they may have failed that one time, but they're going to fail forward. We can learn from that mistake. Let's not make that same mistake again. You're actually encouraging mistakes, which is encouraging innovation. Yeah, and, and you have to also encourage accountability, self-accountability. So it's not like you're, you're just going to cover over mistakes or ignore mistakes. You have to yourself be accountable and the people that make mistakes. First of all, understand it was a mistake. This is what happened. This is what would have worked better, what we'll try differently the next time. And so it, it is a learning thing. But if, you know, a lot of times in our culture today, accountability is not, not, not a, a taught value. You know, people are just used to blaming anybody and everybody. It could be blame the government, blame the guy next to you, blame, you know, you name it. But they, there's no learning and no growing until they understand that, that they, they have responsibility for their own actions. I remember a mistake that I made a few years ago. I was working on a project for a very large corporation, one that many of the people that were employees there, I heard over and over again people say this is a very political organization, and huge office politics, in other words. And, and I'm not oblivious to politics. I'm, I tend to consider myself pretty adept at working through what, whatever needs to be done. In the course of this project, we where we were trying to change some attitudes and behaviors, and we were filming some a series of videos uh, of different people throughout the organization. And one of the people that we were going to interview was a very high-ranking executive, an executive vice president. And this was a very busy time. We were filming lots of videos all over the country. Every single one of them had hoops to jump through just to get it scheduled, get the person to agree to it, get the time picked and all that. Now, in this particular situation, the right way to have scheduled this would have been to have the administrative assistant on the team that I was working in, so that employee, contact the executive assistant for this vice president, um, make the invitation, get the acceptance, and continue to have those to work out all the details. Now, I did work through her to get the invitation extended, so the VP heard from his assistant about the opportunity. He said yes. She related that back. Somewhere along the line, our assistant got really busy and wasn't. It, we were our deadline was coming and she wasn't able to get the details worked out. I was also very busy. And so somewhere along the line, I just emailed that directly to that assistant and was working out some of the details. And we actually showed up as expected and filmed it. The guy was very gracious. I mean, everything worked out great. But somewhere along the line, there was a, a the that his assistant got her feathers ruffled because I was working through her instead of getting to work with her friend, basically. And she mentioned something to one of the people, one of the higher level people on our team. So they took it as this huge risk that they maybe had offended not only the assistant, but maybe the, the VP was going to get ticked off and he's an important ally of, our, uh, of what we're trying to accomplish. And well, you really blew it. Well, when I got the, the slightest inclination that there was some problems, I immediately accepted responsibility, explained it, apologized. She was totally fine. It just, it got 
blown out of proportion. But even though, even after I had issued an ap- apology to everybody who needed to know what was going on, I, I, I had phone calls and emails from different people calling me, say, just confirming that I was the one to blame for this and I should have known better. And these, you know, these blanket emails reinforcing this is my fault and this was a really bad move. When you think about how you feel as that, as that person, was I purposely trying to screw things up? Was I actually thinking thoughtlessly? And, and was I avoiding responsibility? No, I, I can't think of anything I could have done better other than actually avoid the problem in the first place. But we're all going to make mistakes at times. And, and so what you end up with is a culture just like had been described to me. Well, this is a, this is a place that's full of politics, lots of CYA going on. And don't ever take a risk. Don't ever try anything innovative. Just do things the way we've always done it. When that's your organization, your organization is not going to be around for much longer. That's not a sustainable model. There's going to be some disruptor in the marketplace that's just going to chew you up and spit you out because they're going to have, they're going to pursue new ideas, and you're still going to be doing the same things that you've always done. Well, blame blame is is a negative energy to me. I would say the opposite of blame is is cheering for success. So you permeate a culture with blame. I think in the long run, that's going to, it's going to drain energy out of the organization, not just out of individuals, but it's just, it's just like putting a wet blanket over everything. You, you got to be account- hold people accountable, like you said. You can't let people make the same mistake over and over again. I mean, there's, some, there's a problem there. But if you, number one, recognize not every mistake affects the end outcome. We got the video we needed. It turned out to be a great video. It wasn't really a problem. And number two, mistakes are often opportunities for learning. And if you, are, if you can communicate a proper attitude through your actions and words, you're going to keep people motivated instead of demotivating them. Okay, let's move on to number four, thinking in terms of I rather than we. The flip side of that is thinking in terms of we. One of the things I did like from Daniel Pink's book, Drive, is he, he mentions Robert Reich, who was the former U.S. Labor Secretary and has, for the past many years, has been a consultant. And he gauges the health of an organization by what he calls the pronoun test. When he listens to the leaders of that company or the people or commercials or however the company is communicating themselves, he looks for, do they tend to use the word we or do they use terms like I or they? Do employees talk about when they're talking about the company, they say, well, they do blah, blah, blah. They do blah, blah, blah. Or do they say, well, we do this and we do that. And when he says, if, if it's a we company, it's a very different place. And that starts with the leaders. Because if the leader is always talking about I, this is something I'm going to do. Uh, I think we should do this. And making decisions on your own as opposed to where can I involve others in this and, and synergize, basically. Because when you, when you do more stuff on the we basis, you are being an interactive leader. You're not seeing yourself as the magic. You're seeing the team as the magic. And you're re- appreciating that these other people are fully human, smart, capable, competent, and their input really matters. When you always do everything yourself, I'm the magic, I'm the hub of the wheel, the, the other people on your team wonder, you know, even if they don't actually consciously wonder, at least subconsciously, they, they start to realize that they're really not that important around here. It happens with customers too. If you can actually involve customers in, let's say, 
helping with a, an event that's coming up or giving input into a product or a service, you, not only are you probably going to have a better event or product or service because you have that greater input, but you're going to have people that feel more engaged in that, both not only in that specific item, but in your team as a whole, in your company as a whole. Yeah, we're, we're talking about having shared goals, and I, I don't think, you know, quote, shared goals have much credibility if if the perception on, by employees and customers is that, no, these are really, um, those guys have their own goals, and, and, you know, they're really the center of everything. And I think you're right, if, as far as customers go, I mean, customers can feel uh, the same excitement about the success of the company as, as employees at times. You know, they... they they enjoy the product or service. They enjoy being part of something, and and when the whole business is successful, it, you know they they get they they also have joy from that. You know, I think it it's also something that that makes a difference in families. There has been times, and even recently, when my wife Erin and I have realized that with our different business ventures or hobbies or interests that we're doing a lot of eye talking. Well, I've got this going on, blah, blah, blah. Well, tomorrow I got to do this, this, and this, and we're not doing much we talking. That's, that's, those are just words, but there's a reality behind that, that we're, we're, we're in danger of growing apart. We're in danger also of not involving our kids enough with things that our whole family doesn't have a shared purpose, if you will. We, we kind of re- realized that recently, and, and so she and I broke away and, and did a, a little bit of a planning session for ourselves. Are we really, what, what kinds of goals and purposes are we working toward as a family? Okay, we had that initial conversation as two of the leaders, now let's go of the family. Now let's, the next step is let's have a kind of conversation with our kids. And for, for example, one thing we realized is, well, we've got, we're, we're, we've got, volunteering things that we're doing but none of it we're we're not really doing much volunteering together as a family in the same organizations and so sort of the excitement as a family about wow what are we doing together what's our future what what, why what's our purpose is diffused instead of being focused where we could get excited about hey what what's going on with this organization that we're all volunteering for um and and not having those mutual conversations, that we excitement just takes the team and, and makes it less of a team. There's no magic in the team. The magic is only in certain individuals. So true. Well, let's, let's move on to the last point, Jess. Um, this is a big one. Keep people putting out fires. Keep people putting out fires. How many leaders have you seen that when they are in the, the office or in their place of business, they just have a flurry of activity around them because they're creating urgency everywhere they go. And people got to drop whatever they're doing and take care of this thing that the leader has suddenly noticed is important. Or th- they've allowed conditions to exist so that there's always emergencies around that actually allow that leader to help put out the fires. And the, the opposite is to plan for outcomes the team will be proud of. Now, I've seen, I remember back, especially in the early days of your restaurant, it seemed like anytime I visited your restaurant, there were fires to, be, to put out. For example, I might get there to have, enjoy a nice lunch with you, but we couldn't enjoy it because, because uh, we'd sit down for five minutes and someone would run out from the back of the kitchen and say, oh, we're out of cream. And you would, you would the owner of the restaurant, you would actually have to stop what you're doing and run to the store 
to buy cream. Like what, you know, what a minor little fire. And, and that's maybe an extreme example, but you see in a lot of organizations, fires that come up, whether it's, oh, I've got, the, I've got this meeting today. You got, I need you guys to put together a PowerPoint presentation for me. And I need, we don't, where's that latest report on such and such? I need to have those numbers at my fingertips. And it gives the leader maybe a sense of power because you're making all these things happen and all these people recognize how important you are. And plus, you get to be this great problem solver. But in the, in the long run, that's sh- very short-term, urgent thinking. And it might feel good in the, in the, in the, sh- in the very short term because adre- it creates adrenaline. But in the long term, it goes totally contrary to what Daniel Pink talks about, this intrinsic motivator of purpose. There's no, long, there's no real higher meaning for the people on your team or even yourself from putting out all these fires. So you're going to demotivate people pretty quickly and you're probably going to burn yourself out. And instead, if you can plan for outcomes, get the team involved in what's the deeper meaning of our work? What are the big things that we can accomplish together? Yeah, there's going to be lots of small steps along the way, but we're really working toward such and such. And and you've laid out a vision for your team. And some some of those big goals are things that the team can be proud of. And there's also a little ex- sort of deeper meaning as you've talked about when you when you really uh help customers re-energize and then as as one of the people serving those customers you can kind of drink in that energy you know that's a that's a great outcome of the work that people can be proud of along the way yeah i think um first i want to thank you for reminding me of those really early days of the business and uh (laughs) i could tell you just horror stories you know and huge amounts of energy go into uh, fighting those fires, but you know, there's no net gain from any of those firefightings. I mean, uh, you know, okay, you ran out of something, you had to run the story. I mean, the next day you're not going to celebrate your success that you know you put out that fire. It's really you had to put the fire out, and there was really no no uh, long term benefit from it. A lot of energy goes into that, and 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 you can find yourself, um, and I think a lot of people do in all walks of life, find themselves getting into the habit of firefighting because it's what they're used to, and you get a momentary feeling of impact. But you know, I think uh, what we we have to think in an opposite way, and that is, instead of being a firefighter, be a cultivator. You know, this this was this is the idea of of planting and watering and fostering something. And uh, not everything is maybe hitting some little deadlines here and there, but but you, but you're feeding growth and you're feeding creativity, and you get out of that firefighting mode. And once in a while, a fire starts, you know, you put it out. But you don't wake up every morning worried about okay, what uh, is going to fall apart in the next hour that I got to start, you know, wasting my energy on. Instead, you know, you get up thinking, what can I breathe life in today, and who can I encourage, and and you know, what what can I, how can I push the ball forward today. I think that's a great metaphor. A cult, rather than a firefighter or even a fire starter, be a cultivator. Because that, that metaphor really shows that you're not really the magic. You're basically creating the conditions, sometimes maybe uh, encouraging some of the plants, specific plants. Uh, but you're, you're really creating the conditions that allow the team to grow and to produce results. You're multiplying yourself too. You know, you're, you know, so it's like uh, going back to the, the 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 gardening, or we're sitting here in the middle of the national forest area. Sometimes you just, it's just amazing the abundance of things growing. You know, 
And same thing in, in your business life. You know, if you do the proper teaching, training, motivating, encouraging, and those kinds of things, blossoms start to appear, you know, and people will accomplish things that maybe you didn't even think that they could. And and there's almost no limit to it. You know, it's some people who may not even be professionals per se in their in in, in their walk of life, but have all kinds of, of skills that they've developed along along the way and they bring them to bear in your work situation and, and the outcomes can be amazing. So even if you've never stop and worry about how to motivate people because you've, you're trying to cr- basically create a team of self-motivated individuals, whether that's employees, people getting things done, customers, you want people to be self-motivated. You still need to think about how do you avoid actually demotivating people, flipping them actually out of their natural state. And we talked about, I think, probably the five biggest ways to demotivate people. These are mistakes that you want to avoid. And they go, they work totally contrary to being an engaging leader. One is to make all decisions yourself. Two is insist that everything is black and white. Three is find someone to blame for every mistake. Four is think I rather than we. And five is keep people putting out fires. Well, leaders, as we wrap up today's show, let me encourage you to, to join us next time for episode 15 when we interview uh, continuous improvement and lean consultant Megan Burns about how to deal with resistance to change. And if you like our show, please take a little bit of time and rate us on iTunes. That makes a huge difference in helping more people discover it. Go to engagingleader.com slash iTunes. We would love to know your thoughts about this episode. You can leave comments on our show notes at engagingleader.com or connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter, where I am at Jesse Leahy. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at aspendalecommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Arthur Hankey, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about. <laughs>